Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Hey, New Hope. It is uh, really, really good to see all of you today and to be with you. Um, we are today actually completing a short sermon series entitled The Five Solas of the Reformation. And uh, we started uh, going one by one through each of these solas, which are in fact um, five Latin phrases, each of which, each of these phrases um, communicates to us a core theological conviction, a truth that helped shape and really drove the Protestant Reformation. And so as we've gone through each of these, we've tried to unpack each of them and understand not only what role they played historically in the changes that have taken place in the church, but really we've looked at each one and tried to see what they have to say to us today, right now. So let's take a look at just what these five solas are. There's a, a list of them up here I think we'll, we'll see in a, in a moment. Um, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli Deo gloria. The last one is the one we're coming to today. Soli Deo gloria. And the reason we've left it for last is because it's a kind of summary statement. It takes the others and really encapsulates them in a sense. We've seen this in the past, but we'll go over it just one more time. Each of these uh, Latin phrases can be translated into short English phrases as well. And what each of them teaches us is simply this, that salvation or acceptance and forgiveness with God comes by grace alone. That is, it's a gift. We don't work for it. It's given to us through faith alone, which means that the way we receive that gift of acceptance and forgiveness with God is simply by believing, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And salvation is in Christ alone. That is, we can only be saved by faith in Christ and no one else. There's no one else in whom we can put our hope for forgiveness and acceptance with God. Sola Scriptura, or according to Scripture alone, teaches us that everything we know about any of these solas, anything we know about salvation, anything we know about who God is and how to be accepted and forgiven by Him, comes to us in the Scriptures. That's where we find everything we need to know about how we can know God and be accepted by Him. And then lastly, we come to today's Soli Deo Gloria, or for the glory of God alone, which teaches us that forgiveness and acceptance with God is all for his glory. I mean, notice if we look through the list, it's by his gift, it's grace, it's by faith in him, it's by union with faith in Jesus Christ, all as it's revealed to us in his scriptures. You see, each of these solas, one through four, they all point back to God. They all point back to God. And then the very last one just summarizes it and says, listen, if you haven't gotten it yet, all of salvation is for the glory of God. And as we're going to see today, it's not just that all of salvation is for the glory of God, it's that everything is for the glory of God. Everything. Here's how we're going to get at this topic today. We're going to ask three questions. The first one is this, what is God's glory? The second one is, where can we see God's glory? And the third one is, how can we respond to God's glory? So what is it? How can we see it? Or where can we see it? And how can we respond to it? I invite you to pray with me before we jump into God's word. Oh, holy God, we are gathered in your presence in the name of your Son to worship you in the power of your Spirit. And, and we desire to see, as we sit here together, we desire to see your majesty. 
We, we want to know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. And, and all I've got here in front of me on these pages are, are just words. And I know that my words fall short, way short. But I believe that, that, that these words that I have here in front of me are, are true and, and that they're faithful to what you have revealed in your holy scriptures. And so I submit them to you, Lord, and I ask that you, Holy Spirit, that you will come and that you'll take these words and, and enliven them, empower them. I, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and, and enlighten, light up the eyes of our hearts so that we will see your glory. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So what's glory, or what is God's glory? The reason we're asking this question is because I think that, that um, sometimes we use the term God's glory in the church. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard often that we live to glorify God. It's all about God's glory. But I think that sometimes we might lose sight of what glory even means. In fact, if I were to take a poll, I wonder if we'd all be able to give a kind of definition of what God's glory even is. It might come off as kind of like Christianese. You know what Christianese is, right? It's words that... Only Christians use. Sometimes Christianese words that Christians use, we don't even know exactly what they mean. So what's glory? In the Old Testament, the word that, that shows up that's used for glory, it, it literally, it means weight. Think about that, weight. Like, not W-A-I-T, but W-E-I-G-H-T. Weightiness. Glory, glory means, means importance. It means heaviness. It's, it's, the, it's the substance of something heavy. And when we come to the New Testament, the word that's used for glory there, the word doxa, D-O-X-A, is the way we would spell it in English. That word, the, the shade, it's a little different. The, the, the word doxa, that, that kind of glory, it means, it means splendor. It means magnificence. It means dignity. So, so for something, think of it this way, for something to be glorious, it means that it's not only important and heavy and significant, it's also magnificent. It's, it's weighty on the one hand and beautiful on the other hand as well. You see, glory speaks to beauty, greatness. We're kind of piling up words, right? I'm piling up all these English words to try to describe what glory is because really there's no single word in English that captures it all. English word, these words don't really do justice. We, our, our vocabulary is inadequate. But we try, right? It's kind of like when I, my, my almost two-year-old daughter, if she's crying, and I ask her, why are you crying? She'll often say, I'm sad. She says, I'm sad. Now, it could be any number of things going on. It may be that she's hurt. It may be that she misses her mother. It may be that she's tired. It may be that she doesn't feel well, that she's got a cold. Could be anything. It may be that she didn't get what she wanted. But she can't explain all that. All she knows is, I'm sad. That's as far as her vocabulary goes. And when we try to talk about the glory of God, it's almost like we're just trying to use like this paltry little vocabulary we have to get at these big truths and big ideas. And I'm kind of like Daniela, my little daughter, who can't really put it into words. Perhaps one way that, that, that can help us to think about what glory means is to think about how we respond to it, how, how, it, how it affects us. Think about it that way. Something is glorious, or we can tell when something is glorious sometimes by the way that it affects us. Here's what I mean. As humans, we are all hardwired to be captivated by what is glorious. We are all amazed and captivated and excited by what is great. Now, what we consider to be great might differ from one person to the next. For some of us, maybe we could stand before the vastness of an ocean on a shore. I haven't been to the shore in a long time, but I love going there, and I love just looking out at the vastness of the ocean, listening to it, smelling it, watching the waves crash, and noticing not just the beauty, but the greatness and the power of it. That is glory. 
Some of us, maybe you're not so into looking at the ocean, but you might watch the same basketball highlight half a dozen times. I've done that sometimes. Because what this guy did on this highlight is so amazing, I can't believe it. I just want to keep watching it over and over again. And, and, and sometimes I notice that I've got a smile on my face even as I'm watching it. A friend recently said that he, he has lost count of how many times he's watched the trailer for the new Avengers movie that comes out soon. Why has he watched it so many times that he can't remember? It's because he see, in those fictional characters and in those epic battle scenes, he sees glory there. There's something glorious about it to him. It's why uh, tourists jam up traffic on the sidewalks of New York City because they're all looking up and walking side by side as they do it because they see something glorious there, something big and majestic and beautiful. It's why Americans are obsessed with celebrities. Our society is overtaken by an obsession with celebrities. People will spend hours watching red carpet interviews where people only talk about what they're wearing. Why? Because to some of us, there's glory there. Whether it's imagined or not, it captivates you. It's why some people will take pictures of their meals before they eat them, right? And then share those pictures with the world. It's because you see some measure of glory there. There's something beautiful. You, you have ascribed worth and value to that thing you're about to eat. It, it's, so, it's so worthy and valuable to you that before you even consume it, you want the world to see it. And you want a memory of what it looked like so that you can reflect on it later. Greatness, beauty, worth. These are some of the words that capture different facets of this idea of glory. And the fact is that we as humans are all drawn to that. We're all drawn to it. Um, early this year, I had the amazing opportunity to be in Namibia. And while I was in Namibia, uh, a, a few of us were in a car uh, in, on, a, on a safari drive. And um, we, we were in, a, we were in, in a, our fearless leader, Steve Hong's uh, SUV. And uh, Dan and I were there. Dan, I've been shouting you out a lot from up here lately. I don't know what's up, but Dan and I and, and Steve were, were there in this truck together. And we were driving through the savanna looking for animals. And, and all of a sudden, we came upon this huge watering hole. And around this watering hole, there were enormous elephants, a whole herd of them. Actually, I found out they're not, it's not really supposed to be called a herd. It's a parade of elephants, you call it. And, and they're gathered, bigger, like huge, and then a little less huge, the baby ones, right? And they're gathered around this watering hole, and we drive up close, and something about it completely hypnotized us. We just couldn't stop looking at it. I had never seen anything like that. I'd never been in a place like this, surrounded by so much glory all around us, but then these animals in the middle, they just stole the show. Our eyes were glued, and so we started looking, and Steve started like inching up closer. He kept asking, he's like, should I go closer? No, I should Should I go closer? No, I don't know. Should I go closer? And he kept inching up closer, and we kept getting a little closer to these elephants, and then eventually they, they, they caught wind of the fact that we were there, and a few of them, the bigger ones, they turned around and they look at us, and they start stomping their, their huge feet, and they start lifting their, uh, their trunks, and, and they started making noise, and I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think they were welcoming us. I don't think so. I think they were threatening us. But in any case, in spite of the fact that we were so intimidated, we were also further drawn in. We were still saying, like, should we get closer? Like, should we? Maybe we should. This is awesome. The fact that they're making noise and jumping up and down makes them all the more glorious, all the more awesome. Eventually, um, reason won out, and we turned around and, and peeled out. We left. You see, even when something is so glorious and amazing that it, it instills fear in us, we're still, at the same time that we're repelled, we're also drawn in. We're all hardwired to be like that. It's why people chase tornadoes. It's why people want to get video footage of hurricanes. It's why we want to get as close to wild animals as we can. It's why we'd like to sit on the front row seat at a ball game, not up in the bleachers if we have a choice, because we want to be as close to the glory as possible. 
Now, what does glory mean, though, when it's used to talk about God? You see, the Bible speaks of God's glory again and again and again. It's all over the scriptures. In fact, that's what makes it so hard to deliver a sermon like this, because God's glory is everywhere in the Bible. His greatness, his splendor, his worth are spoken about again and again. Here's what the scriptures teach us, though, that the world is filled with glorious things, but God's glory is ultimate. In fact, all created greatness and beauty comes from him and points back to him, whether it's a parade of elephants on the savannah or it's the eyes of your little baby child. Anything that you see glory and beauty and worth and greatness in was created by God and it points back to his greater glory and worth and beauty. His splendor. You see, all the glory that we see in the world around us is derived glory. It's been given to it. One author, he describes the glory of God this way. See if this helps. This may help some of you, some of you maybe not. But this author describes the glory of God as the radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The radiance, so think radiance, it's shining forth, right? It's the radiance, the shining forth of God's intrinsic. It hasn't been given to him. It's in him. His intrinsic worth. His intrinsic beauty. His intrinsic greatness. And the author says, of his manifold perfections. Manifold simply means multifaceted. You see, the Bible doesn't just talk about the glory of God. It talks about the glory of his grace. It talks about the glory of his might. It talks about the glory of his name. And with each of these, it's just another side of the multifaceted glory of God. All of his characteristics, all of his attributes, from his mercy to his justice, to his holiness, to his love, to his steadfastness. Each of them, another facet of his intrinsic beauty and worth. That's my meager attempt to communicate what the glory of God is. But the second question we want to ask is, where do we see God's glory? Where do we see it? We can't see God after all, can we? So, so how, do, how do we see his glory? Where is it on display? And here's where I'd like to ask you to, to grab a Bible. If you have one, crack it open or, or click open on your, on your device. These, we're going to look through a bunch of passages. Um, we're going to just read them briefly. They'll be projected up here, but if you want to, I, I encourage you to, to grab it in a you know, Bible or, or a device and hold it. And if you're, and if you're looking at your device, I just want to encourage you to, to resist that urge to, um, to, to, uh, to, to check those uh, sports scores and, and to find out what, how your team's doing and the Instagram stories. There's glory in all of that, but the glory that's in Instagram and, the, and in the Sunday NFL games doesn't, doesn't even come close to the glory that I believe the Lord wants to communicate to us. So let's ask him to help us focus exclusively on his beauty and worth. Where do we see God's glory? The short answer, everywhere. Everywhere. Let's look at Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. And, and most of the passages we're going to look at, most of you are going to be very familiar with these passages. Here's one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Did you know that the sky is speaking to you? Even when it's kind of dark and gray like today, it's still speaking to you. The, the galaxies themselves, all 100 billion plus of the galaxies in this universe, are shouting at us. And what they're shouting is, God is great. You see, the, these heavenly bodies themselves, whether the constellations or cloud formations, 
the planets in orbit, they're all glorious, no doubt. But their gloriousness, their glory is all designed to communicate the greater glory of their creator. We're meant to look at the constellations and say, what kind of God imagined this and designed this and, and, and created it all by the power of his word and sustains it even now. Psalm 8 talks about the fact that God has, has hung the stars in their place with his fingers He doesn't even have to strain his back to get him up there. It's the way that you and I string Christmas trees this time of year. Decorate our homes. God has decorated his creation with glorious, glorious bodies that all point to his glory. That's what they're made for. And that's what all creation is made for. And that includes you. And that includes me. We were all made to display the glory of God. Look look at this passage in Isaiah. It teaches us this. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. It says there, I will, this is God speaking, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and 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 my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone, listen, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You and I were made to show off the greatness of our creator. You ever ask yourself, like, why am I here? That's why. This is why you're here. Each of us will do it in a slightly different way, but regardless of how you actually walk this out in your life, every single one of us was put here with the same exact purpose to display the glory of our creator, God. You ever walk through your days feeling like uh, your life is like a movie and you're the, you're the star? Some days it's a comedy, some days it's tragedy. Once in a while, maybe, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's adventurous, I don't know. Um, mine are, are uh, usually just long, boring movies. That's how my days play out. But the Lord is telling us we, we've kind of got it backwards. If life is a story, then it's a story about God's glory. And you and I have simply been written into that story by the author, director, and star. We have been written into the story of God's glory. Um, the Protestant reformer Calvin said it this way. He said, all creation is the theater of God's glory. I love that. All of creation the theater, wherein God displays his beauty and worth and majesty. Our purpose is to display and reflect the beauty of our God, and and, and we were made to do that in a way that not even the galaxies can. We were made to display God's beauty in a way that not even the most beautiful mountain or landscape could. Because Genesis 1 tells us that we are unique among creation because you and I were made in the image of God. That is, we were, we were made to display his glory by actually looking like him. Something like a, a, a child looks like her mother or father. They, they bear their parents' image in the same way we were designed to bear the image of our creator. Have you, have you ever stopped to, to contemplate the depth of what that means? Psalm 8, I think, gives us some insight into it. Psalm 8, verse 3 to 6. Here, here when, when David, the psalmist, writes this, he starts out by looking at the stars. Remember earlier in, in Psalm 19, he says, that the heavens declare your glory? He's looking up at the stars. He's saying, wow, God's glory is everywhere I look. He says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. But then he stops looking at the stars, and he starts looking around. He starts looking at himself. He starts looking at his family members, his friends, his neighbors, and he says, what is man? 
mankind that you're so mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Like you've created all this. Why do you care about us? Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. If you stand here as a created human made in the image of God and all of you do, then you have been crowned with glory and honor. In a way that nothing else in creation has been. So that means that you can look to and you can you can do that, you can look at the person right next to you, behind you. And what you see is glory and honor. You might not see it, but it's there. God says so. You, you can look, I mean, I, I thought about making you do this, but I don't, I, I thought it might be a little, it might be a little mean. But I thought about just asking you to look at the person next to you and just say, you are glorious. <laughs> you would not be lying. Just look at your parents are like, I don't mind doing that to my kids, but their kids are like embarrassed, like, please don't do it to me, right? Your, honor, glory, dignity, value, beauty. As I look out upon you, that's what I see. That's what's there. The image of God. You are glorious and you have honor that, listen, nobody can take away. I read a statement earlier this week by a woman who was victimized brutally by an attacker. And that attacker ended up being punished very lightly. I don't think that justice was done. This, this woman writes to her attacker this statement to, her, to a man who violated and, and exploited her and says to him, you took away my worth. And as I'm reading those words, and I think I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of what this could mean to her when she says that, and I'm reading it through tears, but at the same time I'm thinking, no, he didn't. You're wrong. It's impossible. He cannot take your worth. It's not his to take. It's been bestowed upon you by a creator who has made you in his image, which means that no matter what has been done to you, that honor and that worth cannot be taken away. You are a being of inestimable worth. You know, sometimes we, we try to establish our own sense of worth by, uh, maybe it's by just reflecting on our accomplishments or, or maybe we, we look in the mirror and we say, oh, I look good today. Or we think, I'm, I'm, or we look at other people and we say, oh, I'm, I'm more attractive than, than that person, or I'm more intelligent, or I'm better at so-and-so than this colleague or this classmate. Those are the ways that sometimes we try to just build up, piece together some self-worth. I believe that a true and accurate self-esteem is formed not by looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to others, but by looking outside of ourselves to our creator, because our creator says, I have crowned you with glory and honor. You know, in ancient times, rulers would, uh, would, would get artists to sculpt huge statues of them, especially when, when a, a ruler would conquer a new territory. He'd have a, a huge statue put up in that place to remind everyone who was in charge there. And these statues, they, obviously the statue is not the king, it's not the ruler, but the statues were made in the image of the king. The, the statues represented the king, and they told everyone who saw them, the king is great, the king is mighty, and, and his authority is present here. The statue itself has worth. The statue itself is beautiful. It's big and majestic, but it's all meant to point to the greater worth, greater authority, greater majesty of the ruler who had it put there in the first place. I believe that it's in a similar way that you and I were made to bear the image of the king of glory himself. Made with worth and value and yet, and yet, our intrinsic beauty and greatness 
pales, pales, pales in comparison to the one in whose image we were made, who put us here to represent him and to remind the world of who he is. Although we've been put on this earth to image God, we, I think most of us know that something has gone desperately wrong. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they, they, they rejected the rule of their king. They, they were given glory but desired more glory. They desired the glory that belongs only to God. They wanted to rule themselves. And so what did they do? When, when, when Adam and Eve grasped for that forbidden fruit, so to speak, what they were really doing is grasping for glory. And in doing so, they lost it all. As a result, they brought sin and death into the world, and the fact is that the image of God, while still there and still glorious, has been marred in every single one of us. It's been diminished. Think of, think of a glorious statue of a ruler that's been toppled over. Maybe it's been painted over, spray-painted, it's stained, has not been kept up. It's still there and it still resembles the ruler, but not in the way it was meant to. And we've simply continued to do what our first parents did. Grasping for glory in any way that we can get it. Grasping rather than, than being joyful and content in the glory that we've been given as an image bearer of God. We grasp for glory in other things or we grasp for God's glory him, it, itself. That, that is, we want to rule ourselves, be our own kings, or, or we fight to be great in the eyes of, of other people. You ever fight to be great in the eyes of other people? We try to find worth in a thousand different things, and we're never content to find worth in the purpose for which God made us, to image and serve him. We've lived for our own glory. We've taken the world that God has made for himself and people that God made for himself and we've abused them and exploited them for ourselves. Rather than worship God, we've chased stuff. That's what Romans 1 says, right? Romans 1 says that we exchanged the glory of the creator for things talks about idols made out of wood and stone, but really we could throw anything in there. We've exchanged the glory of God for created things which we then worship instead. And because of all that, we've been alienated from God, from our creator. You know that it says in Genesis 1 that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They were present before his glory, basking in it, enjoying it. They, Adam and Eve saw each other as glorious, but then they were there with God and saw him as so much more glorious until they sinned. And all of that changed. Not just for them, but for us. Your sin, my sin, have marred us so much that we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Our sin has made us uh, filthy and, and unworthy to live with the God whose image we are made to bear. One of the ways in which God displays his glory in, in, in the scriptures is through his holiness. He's holy, there's no doubt about it. He hates sin. We sang of this earlier about his holiness. That, that means that any version of God that, that, that sees him as somehow unconcerned with sin, injustice, perversion. That's not God. That's not this God, at least. If you've got a God that, that somehow is okay with sin, your sin or others, then he's a God that you've created in your own imagination. He's not the God that's revealed to us in scriptures. The good news for us, though, and there is good news, 
is that this God will not allow sin to have the final say. This God cares so much about the glory of his creation. He cares so much about his image bearers because he cares so much about the greatness of his own name. And so he's promised to restore, to restore what was marred and broken by the fall. That takes us to another way that God displays his glory. He doesn't just display it in creation. Thankfully, he displays it by saving a people for himself. He displays his glory most beautifully by redemption. Redeeming people like us. Look at this. Ephesians 2. Let's look at this passage. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, this is what we've been looking at for the past five weeks. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is how the King of Glory redeems people like us. He does it in such a way that we get no credit for any of it, and he gets all the glory. Perhaps the most amazing part of all of this, at least to me, is that the King of Glory would redeem us by humbling himself. That, that the King of Glory would redeem us by himself, Philippians says, emptying himself. Look at what Philippians 2, 6-8 says. Some of us, this might be some of our favorite verses in the Bible. It says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You think Jesus is equal with God. He is God, the second person of the Trinity. He shares the glory of the Father, and yet it says here, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, we fail to bear the image of God in the way that we should. We were made to look like him and we failed. And so what does Jesus do? The Son of God himself, he becomes like us. Takes on our image. And then he dies. You see, the Bible is the story of God's glory. And the cross of Christ, I believe, is the most surprising part of the whole plot. Because God there dis displays his glory by humbling himself for us. Deity puts on flesh and bones and dies. So that we can once again stand safe and welcome before the blazing glory of God. And why does he do it? Well, Philippians says he does it because of love. He does it because of love. But then we might ask, but well, why does he love us? Why? Why has he chosen to love us? I think Ephesians 1, if we look back a couple of another chapter in Ephesians, we'll see there that he tells us why. He tells us why he forgives and adopts and sets his love upon us and he gives us new life and he gives us an inheritance. Why does he do it all? It says in Ephesians 1, it's to the praise of his glory. You see, we get no credit for any of it. Salvation is designed in such a way that it would shine a light on all of God's glorious attributes, all of his glorious characteristics, the justice, the mercy, the grace, the love, the wisdom, all of it gets put on blast, gets spotlighted at the cross. His power over sin and death gets spotlighted at the cross. His ability and willingness and commitment to overturn evil completely gets put on blast at the cross. You see, you see how the whole story 
from creation to fall to redemption, it's all about the glory of God? You see that? The Apostle Paul saw that. that that's why in Romans 11, this is the passage that Kai Young read for us earlier. In Romans, throughout Romans, the Apostle Paul's talking about this amazing plan that God has unfolded, this story that goes from creation to fall to redemption. And in the middle of telling this whole story, it's like he just has to stop and he just starts singing a song. It says, in, and it's, it's what we call a doxology, right? Remember I said gr- the word for glory in the New Testament is doxa, D-O-X-A? A doxology is a song, a poem, an exclamation to the glory of God. That's what Paul does here. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? None of us. Look, we've been, we've been going through the... the the solas of the Reformation. I believe that the doctrines of the Reformation are true. I embrace them and I, and I value them. And yet, I believe that even no matter how many years I spend studying the doctrines of the Reformation, how, often, how long I spend testing them and testing them against Scripture, how long I go on studying this book, I will never completely know the mind of the Lord. Because he's not me. You see, the way that God has designed this story is, is to prevent us from theological pride, the kind of pride that says we've got to figure it out. God fits neatly into the categories and definitions in the box that I've created. No, he says no. He goes on in, 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 uh, in this passage. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's certainly true when it comes to our salvation. None of us has given anything to God that has resulted in him repaying us with acceptance, forgiveness. We haven't given him anything that he needs to repay us for. Instead, he has given us the gift that we can never repay him for. In verse 36, it ends with these beautiful words, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Think about what that means with regard to our salvation. It comes from him. And how does he do it? It's through him. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why does he do it? It's all for him. For his glory. Yes, it's for our joy. For our eternal blessedness. But even all that just redounds back to his glory. His glory stands at the the beginning, in the middle, and the end of the story. And all throughout. So last question I want to ask as we close is, how do we respond to God's glory? And this is where we just think about application. How do, how do we, what do we walk away from? There's just two things. One of them is this. There are many things we can talk about, actually, how to respond to God's glory. I'm hoping, in fact, that maybe this week um, you can think through this on your own, in your care groups, in your families, and talk about how do we respond to the glory of God. But I just want to give you two ways here. One Admit your need for forgiveness and acceptance by grace. Listen, God, and this this goes for you whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not. Admit your need for forgiveness and acceptance by grace. Admit your need for grace right now. God has gone to great lengths to display his glory by sending his son in, in humility to die in our place. God, God, God's glory is put on display when, when broken down sinners admit that they need forgiveness and ask him for it. So ask. And I'm speaking especially to those of you who maybe, if, you're, if, you're, if you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian, I'm really thankful you're here. I think you glorify God by being here. But I want to ask you, Do you see yourself as needy, needing forgiveness, needing acceptance? Do you see yourself as having fallen short of the purpose for which you were made? To image God and to serve him. 
If so, then you can respond to his glory by asking him for the acceptance and forgiveness that he freely gives in Jesus Christ. And, and here's the thing. I, I have to say this. There's a flip side to that. And it's a not-so-heartwarming flip side to that. Because the Bible also tells us that God will display his glory. He will display the glory of his justice and his holiness when he judges people who oppose him and reject him. You see, even hell itself displays the glory of God. I believe that God's desire for us is that we would respond to his glory and glorify him not by bringing upon ourselves judgment and wrath and condemnation but by responding humbly to him and receiving his forgiveness and his love and his grace. There's one other way and this is the last way that I want to encourage us to respond to God's glory. How can we respond? We can stop grasping for our own glory. And we can open our hands to offer God the honor and worship that he deserves. That's what we're made for. Right? The, the first Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We are meant to live our lives in every single area for the glory of God. Not for our own glory, right? I, mean, I think that's another thing that maybe you can talk about in your care groups this week. Or you can talk about in your families or with each other. How do we live for the glory of God? How do we do that? How do we obey Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God? I think, that's, I think that can be a really fruitful conversation with your kids, with your spouse, with your family, with your care group. God's purpose has always been to have a people, a people to whom he reveals his glory and a people through whom he displays his glory to the universe so that as you live, for instance, with gratitude towards God, you're displaying his glory. When you seek to live in obedience to God, you're displaying his glory. When, when, you, when you share the story of his glory with others, whether they're in your family or in your church or, or in the workplace or on your block, when you share that story of God's glory, what are you doing? You're glorifying him. And the more we do those things, the less we're meant to be grasping for our own glory. Do you ever want to be made much of? Do you ever, do you ever want honor from other people? Do you, ever, do you ever want that kind of attention from others? creeps in all the time, doesn't it? That desire creeps in. <laughs> Preaching, it creeps in. Serving, and it creeps in. Some, sometimes, maybe it's not that you want all the attention for yourself. You want Jesus to get the glory, but you just want some of it, right? Maybe it's in some area of serving, whether it's serving your family or serving the church, and, and you're doing it, and you're saying it's all for God's glory. I want to do it for him, but we have this sin in us that just makes us want to get some of the credit. I read someone recently described it as um, photobombing Jesus. I thought this was clever. It's kind of like, you want Jesus to be right at the center of the picture. You want him to get the glory. You just want to be in the back like, hey, you know, I was part of this, right? Is your goal in life to make a name for yourself, to, to, to get prestige or fame? Some of us are old enough. We, we're, we're not thinking about prestige and fame anymore. The bus has passed for that, right? We're like, we're, we're, we're done with that. But we just want like a little more respect, you know? And, 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 so, and so maybe it drives us to, to, to pretend that we're something we're not. Or to live differently in public than we do in private. Or to hide our faults. All because we hide those faults because we want glory. The glory that comes from other people. We, we want a taste of that glory. It's so pathetic. It's pathetic when we see it in other people, but sometimes we don't see it in ourselves. What the Lord wants us to see again and again is that the glory that we're chasing after is fleeting. 
It's fleeting. Every single one of us, no matter what our accomplishments, no matter what we do to make a name for ourselves, we will all be forgotten. Even the greatest ones among you will be forgotten. What we're seeing right now, even in in our present culture, we're seeing very powerful men topple. Men who spent a lifetime making a name and establishing power and prestige for themselves are toppling. Robert Mugabe was the president of uh, Zimbabwe, I think, for almost 40 years. He was now deposed, shamefully. We see the Matt Lowers and the Harvey Weinsteins. The list just goes on day by day. I haven't even looked at the news today. There might be five more, for all I know. They built up. They gathered to themselves glory. That's all gone. And so I leave you with this. As you seek to glorify the God who you were made to serve and honor, as you seek his glory, you can trust in this. that As you do that, he will give you a glory that is not fleeting. He will give you a glory that is eternal. I'll read this verse and pray. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Listen, whatever shame, whatever pain, whatever arduous difficulty you're experiencing now, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're fleeting. They're passing. But the things that are unseen, that eternal glory that awaits everyone who lives to glorify God now, that's eternal. So honor God. Serve him. And let him give you lasting glory. God, we we confess that you are not a means to an end. You are the means and the end. From you and through you and to you are all things. So we praise your name. And and Spirit, we, we ask you again, enlighten the eyes of our souls to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And God, we are we are living in very dark days, it seems. We pray that you'd give us the grace to believe and trust and set our hope in the fact that you will display your glory finally by defeating sin and making all things new. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.